Hello and what's up, world? I'm your host, Kareem Rahma, and you're listening to You People, a conversational podcast series sharing real stories from the diverse voices shaping modern America today. We are recording in New York City with Listening Party inside Canal Street Radio. You People is produced by Hyphen Media, an entertainment company focused on telling colorful stories. I'm really excited to introduce you to Antonia Hilton, an award-winning Afro-Latina journalist, correspondent, and producer tackling politics and civil rights. She's also the host of Uncommitted, a new podcast from Vice News and Spotify covering the 2020 presidential race. Antonia has had a really big year. Her short doc, Zero Tolerance, won an Emmy, and she recently landed a spot on the coveted Forbes 30 Under 30 list. So glad to have you in the studio, Antonia. What's going on? Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. Did that was you... a very nice intro for me. Thank you. <laughs> I love intros. I feel like it's like a real fun part of my life is writing intros for my guests. Yeah. Do you think I hit the nail on the head? Yeah, you hit all the best and bright spots. I'm not missing anything? No. I mean, other than the stuff that I wouldn't want in the bio anyway. <laughs> <laughs> very, very accomplished for an under 30. Yep. Pretty baller. Thank you. Pretty into it. Yeah, it's been a crazy year. It really has. Like, if I'm being honest with you, I actually just had this conversation the other day with a girlfriend and producer of mine that I'm close to. If you look at my work life, if you look at like my Instagram, you would think that I've had like the most amazing year. The Emmy obviously being probably the brightest spot of the year. Forbes, a really nice way to end it. But I've also had a really rough personal year. I mean, my grandparents who I was very, very, very close to, both passed. And so it feels like this huge year of transition. And it's crazy that it's coming at the end of a decade. Yeah, I feel like I'm starting 2020 with like a whole different understanding of family, a whole different sense of purpose in my work. I feel like this year just like threw me forward. For sure. And on paper, it looks like it was perfect. I can promise everybody who like looks at that stuff and thinks that like I must be waking up every day like, dapping myself in the mirror that like it's not perfect yeah yeah <laughs> but it does feel like I'm on like the brink of something and so it's nice to like close it out having these conversations with people because yeah. it has been such a weird and momentous year I think that with the good always comes the bad and yeah. I think that like transitional years always end up feeling like you're a completely different person right like it's not like a mild transition it's like I don't remember who I was last year. Yeah. Do you feel like that? A bit. I'm struggling to remember where I was mentally a year ago because it's all just happened so, so fast. I think I've matured an immense amount. My priorities have shifted completely. I think I'm going to start being someone who diaries like journals this year. Yeah. Because I'm realizing like, oh my God, so much can transpire in a year when you're now like an adult. Yeah, yeah. And everything. <laughs> and I need to like... I don't know, like have a little time capsule or some shit so that I know what's yeah. going on in my own life. Well, everything falls through the cracks. Like yeah. all of a sudden you remember the big moments that you posted on Instagram, but you don't remember like all of the in-between moments, mm -hmm. which are life. Yeah. That is like the life part is yep. like the non-momentous moments. Yeah. And I think the journal allows you to like record those mundane details that when you look back on in a year seem like really significant or like yeah. turning points. That is what I need to do. Let's start. You could do an audio journal. Have you ever <laughs> thought about so. that? Is that what I'm doing now? Can I get a transcript kind of, of this? <laughs> yeah, this is actually a good idea. I haven't thought about this until now, but like I've tried journaling and I've failed every time. I have no journal. I write poetry. That is kind of a way of journaling, I but it's also, would say that, yeah. it's not a very, I can always read my poems and look back and be like, I know what I was feeling or I know what I was thinking about, but it's not specific enough. But maybe an audio, like I could record 
voice record mm-hmm. myself every night and just be like, today I did this, today I did this. It seems a little bit easier than writing it down. I wonder yeah. if it's as effective. I think so. I mean, I have friends who've started voice recording their family members, interviewing their parents, their grandparents. And that's another big thing on like my personal list for this year. I'm like, I have people I need to interview. Just sit down and be like, hey, you told me this crazy story. I actually want you to tell me it one more time. Yeah. And I'm just going to have like my crappy phone app record this because I need this somewhere. Who knows? Maybe 10 years, I'll forget the details, the name, the place, like, you know? It's so smart. And I think it might just be because of our kind of exiting our 20s. But I know a lot of people who have started doing similar things. I know one person who's making a documentary about their dad and they're just getting so much footage, like hundreds of hours of just footage about their dad, who's this big entertainer person. And I've talked to a couple other people who are decidedly going out. I've done it myself. I've actually tried to interview my aunt who doesn't speak English. So it makes it a little bit more difficult. I've interviewed some of my dad's friends who passed away. My dad passed away when, uh, in 2007. And I'm just trying to like capture these little relics of information that are so fleeting in today's like world. Yeah. So I'm definitely a supporter of that. Speaking of family, you grew up in Boston, but you were born in Chicago. Yep. Did you live in Chicago for a long time? No, I mean, up until I was like just before kindergarten. So my parents had the first three of us. I'm one of seven kids, I should say. Oh, First of all, I have a huge family. (laughs) I'm one of seven kids, all from the same parents. And what number are you? I'm the third oldest. So the three oldest. oldest are like Chicago originally, got shipped out to Boston, and then I wrote everyone else Boston their entire lives. But I also like my mom is one of six. Like I have something like 30 cousins. I have family in Australia, in Cuba, in the U.S., everywhere. Wow. (laughs) Um, My family is very big and insane. And Boston was a really weird place, honestly, to grow up being a hyphenated person. Of course. A person of color. That was one of my questions. It's like it's mostly white, right? Yeah, Boston is so white. And... Honestly, I crap on Boston a lot. And I have a hard time when people ask me, where are you from? Because when I say Boston, I think that that means something to a lot of people that has nothing to do with me. Right. And it's really hard for me to reconcile the fact that I spent so much of my life there, but I'm nothing like that place. (laughs) Right. It is. I mean, for a while, me and my siblings were the only black kids from the town that we went to elementary school in. Wow. The school had a program that bust in kids from the city, as a lot of Massachusetts public schools do. But we were the only kids that actually lived in town who were of color. And I had all these insane experiences growing up that I now have like the language and the knowledge base to look back and understand like how I was kind of racialized by people mm-hmm. that I lived around. But at the time, I just felt lonely all the time and confused and weirded out. Yeah. And I didn't have the language and the understanding to process all of that as a kid. And so Boston, like, it's really hard to be a young black, young, anything that's non-white in that city or around the outskirts of that city. Yeah, I mean, the leadership of that city is so, so white. The culture of the social scene is so, so white. Even when you're in liberal areas where people are like, I voted for Obama twice, Mm -hmm. wink, wink. You're like, you find them saying things to you that still remind you that you're an outsider to them mm-hmm. or that they exoticize you in some way or another. And then, of course, you know, a lot of people think Massachusetts is like this like liberal state that produced Elizabeth Warren. It's not true. There are tons of really, really conservative parts of the state, more rural-like parts of the state where people really don't 
have a ton of contact or understanding of minority communities. And so that gets mixed into the outskirts and the community of Boston too. And so you're fighting all these things when you're growing up there. I couldn't imagine because I grew up in a fairly diverse place, which was St. Paul, Minnesota. I mean, certainly over indexes in white, but there are a lot of Hispanic. There are a lot of African-American people. There definitely were not a lot of Arab Americans. So that's like the one thing that I was alienated from, but I did see enough people of color to not feel like I was the only one, you know? But when you talk about not being able to relate to being a Bostonian, I definitely can vibe with that because I've never felt, or at least I did feel Minnesotan until I moved to New York eight years ago. And now I'm like, I'm a New Yorker. (laughs) Like, I don't know what y'all are talking about with the cold weather and with like, and like, and I never got into like the lutefisk and the general Minnesota traditions of like Nordic culture, just like impossible. You know, I had to like teach myself how to like ski and snowboard because neither of my parents were born in Egypt. They definitely were not hitting the slopes. Uh, Definitely were not ice skating. So like a lot of that I had to take upon myself to do. But even then I would definitely get made fun of for being, you know, like there's a lot of microaggressions. I never felt like people were being straight racist at me or to me, but there was a lot of microaggressions and like subtleties. Like an anecdote that you remember as a kid that like replays in your mind. Well, I I feel like a lot of people of color have that. Let me think. So, I mean, I've told the story before, but like just having to kind of lie about celebrating Christmas and stuff to just kind of like, mitigate the risk because my job as the oldest child was to I was trying to like assimilate my family right like I was trying to like be not different I was trying to just fit in as much as possible because I'd seen what happens when you get bullied for being different like I'd seen the kids who either didn't have a lot of money or had some sort of different thing about their physically or mentally and all I wanted was the safety of fitting in. So like I did as much as possible to just blend in and talk about how I wasn't so much different from them. And I didn't really get out of that until really until like college. So that just is something. It's not a specific anecdote. When I do think about it more deeply, I do know that I was called like a sand N-word many times. And I didn't even understand what it meant. You know, and it wasn't until later on that I realized like, oh, like that's really, really, really hurtful and really bad. What about you? Yeah, I have a couple. When I was in fifth grade, I had really, I mean, I still have really big hair or I now have really big hair. Like this is right before I started relaxing and straightening my hair. Hair was huge. I honestly wasn't particularly good at it. I would go to school every day and my hair would by the end of the school day look kind of crazy. And a group of boys in my class thought it was a fun game to start trying to hide things in my hair to see like how long it took for me to find out that they had put like a leaf in the back of my hair, stuck like a little pencil in the back of my hair, their eraser, because my hair was so like buoyant yeah. and that if you put it there, like it probably would stay there all day <laughs> if I didn't think to like take my hand back there and like shake it out. And I remember my teacher noticing and like yelling at the boys, but like not really having any conversation with me about what that meant. And me kind of going home and being like, knowing that was fucked up, but like, I didn't really know why. And I think I talked to my mom about it and I could see that it hurt her. But I also think she wasn't quite ready to accuse the boys in my class who Mm -hmm. like probably also didn't know why they thought that was a funny thing to do. And like, how serious, how deep in that conversation do you go with someone who's in fifth grade? 
And so I'm sure my parents comforted me, but I don't really remember. I remember feeling very alone after that and feeling like I hate my hair. I don't like that I come to school and I look different than my friends. And so then sixth grade came around and I begged my mom all summer. I said, let me have straight hair. Let me go to the salon. I want to straighten my hair. Please let me straighten my hair. My mom let me go. And I started relaxing my hair for 11 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a real struggle. I remember coveting straight hair because yep. my hair was very kinky. And now is like beautiful and curly because I moisturize it and I'm not mm -hmm. take care of it. But like, <laughs> I just settled on just cutting it. I just had a buzz cut because like I couldn't stand it. I hated it so much. And yeah, I would relax my hair as well in college like and have the spikes. Like I wanted spiky yeah. hair and I had the spiky hair. And again, <laughs> it wasn't until I moved to New York in 2012 that I let it grow out yeah. because there's just not enough people that get it in these parts of the United States. Yeah. Um, I graduated from college in 2015, moved right to New York and basically went to a salon and was like, chop off all my hair. And just start over again. Yeah. And I grew it out and it was such a crazy time. Like Trump had just announced that he was running for president. I had broken up with my first real boyfriend ever. Like I was just in this like, what is going on in the world place? Right. And I landed in New York and I started to see people who looked like me and had beautiful hair and afros and braids and whatever and celebrated themselves every morning when they woke up. And I just thought to myself, that's where I need to get. I may not be there right now, but that's where I need to go. So I went to a salon and made someone cut all my hair off. What, I had like this much hair for a while. Props, props and now to it's you here. for going for it. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. <laughs> that is a really interesting thing that you just said, though, that you graduated college in 2015. Mm -hmm as Trump was announcing his election. So I'm 33. I think I was already had worked at Vice. I'd worked at the New York Times. I'd been around. And when he announced his candidacy, I kind of was like, that's hilarious. I actually bought a Make America Great Again hat, not from his website, but from like some weird bootlegger because I was like, this is hilarious. Like to me, it was an unbelievable joke. I was like, this is the funniest thing. I could not believe that America would take it seriously. And I could not believe that he would be president. And it was before a lot of the rhetoric as well. It was mm. before a lot of like the racial rhetoric. It was before a lot of the singling out of Muslims and African-Americans and other immigrants. It was kind of just when he was like, I'm running for president. I was like, that's fucking funny. I'm buying the hat. I'm going to wear the hat. And I have a picture of me wearing the hat. Now I look at it and I'm like, Scrub, wow. scrub, scrub. Delete, no, I don't delete, even delete. care. I'm, I'm talking about it on the podcast because yeah. it was not an intentional thing. I was just like, this is hilarious. It's never going to happen. And to get into journalism at that time, it sounds really confusing because as you can see, I blundered uh, by like not taking it seriously. Was that one of your driving forces? Like when you graduated, were you like, I need to cover this because you cover politics, you cover civil rights, or was that already kind of a theme in your life? I mean, I knew very early on that I wanted to do something in doc, in media, I just have always been, and it sounds like really cheesy to say, like since I was little, I, I don't remember that like one moment of me deciding like, oh God, I have to be a reporter now. There are a bunch of little moments. It's like, I remember the Boston coverage of the Catholic church scandal. That was a moment where I was like, wow, reporters are really fascinating, yeah. good people. Coverage of Hurricane Katrina inspired me to join a Katrina club and donate and travel to Louisiana every year and work. And doing that work made me think like, wow, what an amazing thing to have a job that would send you there to tell stories of people who otherwise the federal government, the rest of this country would have ignored. And the power and elevation that reporters brought 
to really deserving people at a really, really dark time in our history. Like I remember that being like a moment. And then I had a job lined up and I was at my job when I found out that Trump was running. So he didn't inspire me in any way, Mm -hmm. but it has been this crazy learning curve where I'm joined this field that's complicated enough as it is. Immense like moral and ethical challenges that you're facing day in and day out. And then you're faced with this unprecedented person. You're faced with a field that wasn't ready to tackle that unprecedented person because of its own structural problems. I mean, you've seen it. Like newsrooms are really white for the most part. And they didn't take what he was saying seriously. You know, there was this period where I think people thought it was a joke. And then there's this period where he started saying some really serious stuff. And maybe people still thought it wasn't real that he'd get elected, but he was saying stuff that was infecting the tone and now sort of the culture of the country. You know, you start hearing stories about kids like chanting, build that wall at their Latino classmates. You start hearing these things and you're like, oh, no matter what the result of this is, this is having an impact. And there were reporters who were not ready to say, that is a racist thing to say. He has inspired racist acts who were afraid to use those words because they were words that they were taught, like, unless someone literally uses the N-word or they've joined the KKK. I think there are a lot of like (laughs) white people who think that like racism is literally, you have to come out there and be like, I'm David Duke. I don't like black people. Right. You literally have to say that to be racist. And so much of our field, brilliant people who are really hard workers and I think thought they were doing their very, very best, failed in a lot of respects to talk about what was happening in that election in the words that we needed to use to talk about it. For sure. And so to be trained up in that moment. So like on the one hand, having all this respect for the field, but then also watching it fail in front of me, Mm -hmm. I do think that has really changed like the urgency with which I do my job, the type of stories that I pitch. I mean, if you just look at what I did at Vice, I started there in 2016. I mean, like a lot of my beat has been politics, but it's been like, race, the story of like race in this country and how black people talk about it, the experience of immigrants in the country. I mean, those are the two groups I've spent a lot, a lot of time reporting on and whose voices I've tried to elevate because I think so many people thought they were the side story. They are the story and they're going to continue to be through this coming election. Mm -hmm. And so I feel in a way like privileged because as like, I guess an outsider or like physically appearing to be an outsider in my field, I've been able to do some stuff that other reporters just never would have thought to ask those questions, go to those places, consider those people interesting. And I guess Trump has put me and people like me in the position to prove themselves in that way. Right. So in that respect, yeah, he has had a huge impact on my job and on my thinking, but he wasn't the reason I went into journalism. Right. Well, that's good. And so your mother is Afro-Latina. Yeah. And the Latina part is Cuban? Yes. So my mom is, her mother is Cuban, black woman from Cuba. Her dad is Australian. So my mom is half Australian white, half black. You have a lot of hyphens in your family. (laughs) And then my dad is a black man from Detroit, (laughs) African-American, descendant of slaves in the U.S., family from Virginia and Georgia. And where did they meet? They met in college. Their freshman year, they lived in the same little freshman dorm, actually. That's amazing. Called Canada. And they didn't date. Actually, my dad, for a brief period of time, dated one of my mom's friends. Nice. Like in a loose, not serious yeah, sense of the word like, date. They, they yeah. were engaged. Yeah. And then they reconnected after they graduated. And my mom rented a house next to his parents' home and ran into my dad's twin brother and was like, hey, Keith, which is my dad's name. He was like, I'm not Keith, but I think I know who you're looking for. <laughs> and then connected them. And then, you know, the rest is history. And then was off to the races. Yeah. And so you grew up in a household with multiple cultures. Yeah. It sounds like. I mean, like at least... 
three, maybe like the Latina side, the African American side, maybe the Australian side, a little bit of influence, minimal, the Bostonian side. Well, you know, I guess it's unfair to say like minimal Australian influence because actually my grandfather is a big, big figure in my family. And your grandfather is white. Your yeah. grandfather is a white Australian guy. Yep. But All culturally, my- if, like, if you see my family operate, you're like, okay, clearly there's this like Latin and Cuban influence and then very, very clear black American culture. My dad's side of the family, there's so much history there. I mean, my dad's dad knew Martin Luther King wow. and was himself a lawyer who worked on a lot of different type of work, but civil rights work as well. I mean, so much of my family came out of the South and went up North following the same path. That's sort of like our country's story. I mean, I have ancestors who we know like left their businesses in Georgia because the KKK showed up to them one day and were like, basically we'll kill you or you leave your business behind and get out of town. That's the story of so many black families and their migrations into other parts of the US. And so one thing I use to describe my family to people who ask is when you come into my house, there's a coffee table that has the book Without Sanctuary on it, prominently displayed. Without Sanctuary is a picture book of lynchings in the US. Wow. A lot of people's coffee tables have like Jeff Koons books <laughs> and like, I don't even know, but my family, it's like, like lynchings yeah. right here on the table. Like, know your history, where you come from and what your position is in this country and what your family has fought for. That's just, I don't even remember someone trying to instill that in me. That book has always been there. That conversation's always been there. I've known what my grandparents' experiences in and out of this country have been like. And so, yeah, I would say it was like a melting pot of experiences, but like very heavy on Black American history and then very heavy on Cuban food and Cuban culture and sensibility. I bet you have a great Thanksgiving meal, Christmas meal. Yeah. Good stuff. Be good. (laughs) Sounds like it. So you kind of cruise through elementary school, middle school, high school. No major problems. It just feels like, you know, maybe some alienation. I feel alone. I feel like I'm the only person of color in my neighborhood, which at least fortunately you had siblings yeah. to help that out. <laughs> yeah. And then senior year of high school comes around and are you like, I'm going to Harvard? Like, what was the deal with that? Like, was it a plan from day one? You were like in high school, were you very studious and were like, I want to go to Harvard. I want um, to I wasn't gunning for Harvard specifically, but I, I have always been very ambitious, always good at school. I came from a family, like my, especially the immigrant side of my family, right? classic mentality. Education is everything. Mm -hmm. Your family moves ahead because you got degrees. My grandmother was born into poverty in Cuba and she left Cuba right before the revolution because she got an opportunity to study science in the U.S. Boom. Like, what does that teach you when that happens? And then you watch what happens between the U.S. and Cuba after that. And you see the trajectory of your life and the trajectory of the family members who are left behind the conclusion you come to is education is everything, right? So my parents were never hard on me being like, you need to go to Harvard. You need to play the violin or something like that. But they were always like giving me books, teaching me like chess, like just bringing things into my life that would just naturally make me intellectually curious Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and reminding me that education is what gave people in my family the opportunities that they've had. So I just knew that that was like in my blood. And is is Harvard semi-diverse or is it because it's like white and Asian? 10%. Yeah. I mean, 10% black people there. I forget the other percents, but yes, I would say like majority white. Then there is about, I think 30% Asian, 10% black. I forget. I mean, the Latino community there is complicated too, because Afro Latinos like often are kind of split up and miscounted among that group. Mm -hmm. So like, are you just counting sort of non-black 
Latinos are white Latinos included in your, or are they really more part of the like Caucasian community at school? Big question. But yeah, I got in, was so, so happy. Obviously it felt like this reward for the hard work that I'd done. But a lot of people in my town weren't happy for me. Really? (laughs) Yeah. No way. This group of boys in my town actually like went to the administration in my high school and they were like, she only got in because she's black. And yep. And, that is horrible. Oh, it gets worse. They would like yell at me down the stairs in the high school. We had these long stairways that would go down three floors. So you could kind of see down these long stairwells. And like they would, like, you know how when high school boys went through that phase of like yelling like 69 all the time? <laughs> like they would basically yell like, she only got into college and she's black. Like in that same tone of voice, oh. like in the hallways. Yep. To make fun of me in front of a lot of my classmates. So it ended up being a thing that I kind of actually felt like I had to play down and hide. Like I couldn't like put on my Facebook, like, oh my God, so excited about going to Harvard. I'm going shopping for my dorm room stuff the way other people would, you know, because I just thought, oh, people actually are mad at me. I remember a person called my mom a bitch at prom, (laughs) my senior year prom. People kind of all gather together and leave from this spot at our high school and go to prom together. And parents come. They know your boyfriend, whatever. They're all there. It's kind of a casual like sign off thing. Mm-hmm. So all the parents are there. And this parent called my mom a bitch. And I was like. Another parent. Yes. Yes. Another parent of one of the boys who'd been doing this. Because I think my mom had complained to the school about their son's behavior. So they called my mom a bitch. And I was just like, imagine like your son has like terrorized this black girl in school and accused her of all these things. And then her mom calls and asks the school to defend her. And then your response is to, at prom, go up to that woman and call her a bitch. Anyway, I was like, let me, like, peace signs up. Like, let me get out of here <laughs> as sure. fast as I can. That sounds horrible. Yeah. I mean, that is a fucking sick amount of bullying to go through for, like, a major life accomplishment. That's also just a rite of passage, like, going to college and getting into college, like, should be some of the happiest times of your life. And this sounds like it made it one of the worst. I mean, that sounds hurtful. I wish I could tell you that it was like, that I thought it was this like unique and terrible, scary thing that happened to me when I went to Harvard. Like almost every black kid I met had had a similar incident. You know, maybe they hadn't had it in this like same, it wasn't happening at school for them. It was like someone said something to them at a restaurant or in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But like almost every black person I ever shared this story with once I got to Harvard, they were like, oh yeah, no, this person said this kind of thing to me too. So it's just a thing that happens. Guess so. You only got in because you're black. Guess, guess so. Good God. And it wasn't my 3.94 GPA <laughs> or anything like that. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't one of the, the fact that you're one of the most eloquent people I've ever met in my life is because you're black for sure. So you get to Harvard and you choose a major, which is history and science, specializing in psychiatry and incarceration. Yeah. Very specific. Very specific. Very interesting. Why? Why did you why did you choose those? You could have uh, Yeah. So it was by chance. I took a class called Madness in Medicine, which was run by the head of our de- that department. And it was this tiny department, like I think there were forty kids per grade decided to do that major. And I took the class and just became obsessed with the history of science, medicine, and psychiatry because it touched everything. I mean, you could study both world wars through the lens of just what happened in terms of the advancements around medicine, what happened in terms of therapy and mental health treatment when people returned from war. Like there were people who I worked with who specialized in that. It was sort of the story of the development, say, of like our understanding of PTSD. And I found it really fascinating to look at sort of the birth of the asylum 
and what it was like then in the U.S. context and its relationship to then mass incarceration. So I really focused on actually what happens in the 50s and 60s in the U.S. as we start to deinstitutionalize and rethink the fact that we're housing mentally ill people in facilities. But then we're also beginning the early stages of kind of a national conservative conversation around like the criminalization of non-white, mostly black people in the country and thinking that they increasingly actually need to be locked up in one space or another. And so a, a big research project that I did there looked at a specific asylum called Crownsville in Maryland that was a black only asylum, segregated asylum, started in the early 1900s. It literally began with state troopers dragging a bunch of black men in chains to a clearing field and telling them to basically build an asylum for themselves. Like basically like slave labor in the early 1900s. So they construct this asylum and it ends up becoming in the mid 1900s, this space where like there were people who had serious mental illnesses treated there in many cases, but it also became known and pretty publicly known in Maryland that they were bringing and dropping off young black men there who like probably actually didn't have a mental health problem. I mean, there was this big scandal of three civil rights activists being like forcibly committed to that asylum. And so there starts to be this conversation among staff, among people working at local jails, among people who work at that facility about the fact that it's sort of being used as a prison and the therapeutic aspect is not there and that intentionality isn't there for black people. And so while we're talking about ending sort of this like incarceration of mentally ill white people in the U.S. We're actually thinking more and more about locking more and more black and brown bodies up. And so right. I, I became kind of obsessed with that. And I really loved that the department was so weird and small because I could just like run at it head it, first. It sounds like you were doing the work from a very journalistic perspective oh, yeah. there. And so did you know that you were doing that? Did you know that like you were beginning kind of to lay the groundwork of becoming a reporter? Because the way you opened up that conversation is the way that a reporter would open up that conversation, which is peeling back layers of something that seems obvious or simple and then going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until you unravel this entire kind of narrative about it. Did you know you were doing that work or was that secondary? Like, how did the journalism element, how did the I think I can be a reporter translate from I'm going to study history and science. What was funny was that that was sort of just my instinct was like, I don't believe this narrative about this thing. I'm in this weird department that's going to give me the resources to travel, to go to Maryland, to dig into this archive, to interview people, to travel to this site where the asylum was. And I'm now just obsessed with finding out like, what is the truth and what happened here? And why am I like looking at this information and it doesn't quite match up to how Maryland might describe itself, like its history at that point in time. And I remember one of the two people who advised me through that thesis, she was like, you know, some people in the department want you to go do a PhD. I think you'd be a really good reporter and you should do that because you just like investigating stuff. <laughs> you second guess things. You're kind of cynical. <laughs> a lot of reporters I hear are kind of cynical people. <laughs> like, sure. I think you should try that out. Like, why would you do seven years of grad school when you could just go do that now? And I was like, yeah, that does make sense. That's kind of what I was starting to tell myself anyway. And thank you for validating that on the outside. Which is so exciting yeah. to have someone. It's like such a, when you have something in your gut and then somebody approaches you and kind of like kicks you in mm -hmm. it. And then you're like, damn, thank God. Like, that's what I needed. Like yeah. that extra little boost. Thank God for those people. And that's like actually the story of my career is a lot of moments where I've just been like, oh, shoot. I'm kind of good at that thing. Or like, oh, someone like really supported me in making that happen. Like what a odd 
thing that has just transpired by chance. And mm-hmm. now it has moved me and propelled me forward. Let's talk about the big odd thing that propelled you forward, which was interviewing Joe Biden <laughs> in 2016 at the age of 22. What a yeah. like massive accomplishment at the age of 22. So you were working at Mike as a producer, rest in peace, Mike. R.I.P. <laughs> and was that your first kind of break in New York City? Like you moved here, I'm going to be a journalist. Yeah. And then applied for a job and got it. I moved here. I had no money. <laughs> it was like literally couch surfing because I have a lot of family that lives in New York. So I would call like my grandparents and be like, hey, can I come? I'll help cook and I'll clean your home. I'm and- sure they'd love to have you. Oh, don't they have to did. Bribe oh my them. God. Yeah. You don't I have was- to say, I'll clean and cook. Oh, I tried to be nice to bribe them, but they were like then sad when I wanted to leave. Yeah, of course. If I had grandparents in New York City, I think I would just live with them. I think you know, I would just be like, you know what? I'm going to live on the, like, the Upper East Side with these grandparents and just chill. It sounds awesome. And it was really great in a lot of ways. <laughs> but like my grandpa would call me every day at 5 p.m. being like, I'm starting to make a dinner. Like in an Australian accent that I'm not going to try to copy. And he'd be like, do you want to come? Like I'm making like pork chops or whatever. And I'd be like, grandpa, it's five. Like, I'm going to be at work for like three more hours. And he'd be like, three more hours? And Tony, I'm going to be asleep in three more hours. And so it just, it felt like, oh, like our lifestyles are not totally aligning. Right, right. I wonder if I'm annoying them when I come in late. Like, so I felt like as much as I love seeing you guys every day, I should probably get my own place yeah, as yeah. soon as I can afford it. Yeah. So I moved there, had no money at first, got this job. And actually like at first was just a fellow, not even an employee of Mike's. Like I didn't have like healthcare from them or anything. Mm -hmm. So just running around, doing what I could, working tons of weekends for them. They finally brought me on. They start launching all these shows, these sort of digital shows. And they realize they don't have any field producers. And I was like, hey, like, I spent all my summers in college actually just like creeping around on these sets and like helping people with things. So I think I can maybe try field producing that thing for you. I was not qualified. Yeah. No, I was definitely not qualified, but they were kind of desperate. So they let me go do it. And I got to work on Liz Plank's second season of her first show. And then I got to end up field producing two seasons of Darnell Moore's doc digital series, The Movement. And so after I'd done that, they were kind of like, oh, she does know how to do this. We'd been in talks to try to get Biden to talk to somebody at the company about the 2016 election and about campus sexual assault, which was a big story at the time. And they end up being like, you know what, Antonia? Like, you've worked your ass off. You take a shot at this interview. Wow. So what all a, the grinding, a, like, quickly paid off. Yeah, that's yeah. a home run. Yeah. That's a big moment. I bet your family was very proud. Oh, yeah, my mom was like, what? Wait, like, in person? <laughs> you're going to meet him in person? He want you? Does he know you're only 22 years old? Like, yeah, I remember people being, like, kind of confused. I think they thought, like, oh, he's going to talk to you on the phone or something. And it was like, no, a whole... Yeah, I'm sitting down with him. Yep. That's yeah. incredible. And working at Mike, did you like working at Mike? I did. I mean, it was crazy there. I was there it was for... run by millennials. Like and <laughs> everyone working there was millennials. Like it was, yeah, I read some articles about it. And oh, I'm I sure also... the New York Times one where there's like someone on a hoverboard. Yeah, the... <laughs> but I was kind of like, this sounds great. I mean, the one story about like the treehouse guy mm-hmm. was kind of funny. I was just like, this is pretty typical. I wasn't very surprised. I was working at the Times at the time yeah. and I was very jealous because mm. I was like, that is not my experience working at the New York Times. Like yeah. I am not seeing any hoverboards. Mm-mm. I'm certainly not building a treehouse. Nope. And there are a lot of meetings. We're going to a lot of meetings right now. Every day meetings. Yeah. I mean, so they were really great to me. I got there. It was a combination of me being a really, really hard worker and a combination of me also being lucky. I got there. They had just gotten a lot of cash. 
They were going to experiment with all these video series. They didn't have people who were qualified to do it. And so I got to just like kind of scam my way into being this field producer for them. That's the best. When I shouldn't have been. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. You always say yes and then figure it out <laughs> Always later. say yes and then call a lot of people for advice and have panic attacks in your hotel room. But then you show up and you look like you know what you're doing. Yeah. That was what's the, the worst that can happen? I ruin a shoot and waste a lot of their money. It's <laughs> not that bad. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. So let's talk about Uncommitted. Okay. New podcast, dope, about the lead up to the 2020 election. You're on that beat. How much fun have you been having making that? It's been a lot of fun. I mean, podcasting is really different from a lot of the doc stuff that I've been doing. Mm -hmm. I don't get to rely on visuals. So I have these moments. So I just released this week a story about Black maternal health. And a group of black women in Iowa who've had these harrowing experiences with white doctors and nurses in the state and who are kind of banding together. They all found each other online and kind of created this coalition. And they're banding together to try to get Democrats to take their concerns about the health system seriously and promise and commit to doing something about it. So, like, for example, in that story in the field, I realized both like the power and then sometimes the limitations of like just audio only. Mm -hmm. So... I interviewed this woman and her children. She had these two twins who she's talking about the birth of the two twins. They're five years old now and they are so, so cute. And the son keeps coming over to his mom describing some of the challenging experiences she had with doctors. How, for example, like she gave birth and the doctors who actually birthed her twins like wouldn't introduce themselves to her which is just so disrespectful. Mm -hmm. And like the pain of feeling like these like white doctors, like look at me in this gown on this table and like think I'm trash and like don't care for me to know who they are or for them to be accountable to me. And she's talking about that. And her son keeps coming over and kind of comforting her, like petting her arm, wow. trying to whisper in her ear. At one point he comes over to her and he goes, support black women. Oh my God. And it was this moment that like, sounded really random when you like listen back to it. But in the moment, if it had been on video, I was like, oh, that's something I would have like, oh, right. I want to put that in one of my pieces. Right, right, right. So bad. So in that moment, I was like, damn it. But then also I realized that the women were able to go really in depth with me on some of the things that had happened to them because they were comfortable because it was audio only. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get someone to open up about their pregnancy visually to you. For There's sure. a lot they can't and don't want to show. And that's so understandable. Like what an extremely personal and sensitive time in your life. Yeah, you just got a fat camera pointed at them. Yep. And who wants that really when you're pregnant? I mean, you barely like want to talk to people and you're like nearly vomiting a lot of the day. Like who wants that? So, but it's different when you're just sitting and having a conversation. A lot of people do want to open up verbally about what they've been through or what they are going through in the moment. And so I found that I was able to push and go places with some of these women that I think would have been really hard if a camera had been there. Right. And so I just have an immense appreciation for podcasts, for people who are audio producers and audio first folks. I'm really excited to keep learning more about it. Being in Iowa has been fascinating to me. I feel like it's a really cool thing to be a woman of color covering politics in this very white state. For sure. And being able to put a lens on that that says like some of this stuff, these things we take for granted, these assumptions we make about politics, they're bullshit. Mm -hmm. And they're not how this like rising minority portion of our country like sees things. And so we're going to go to this state and it's going to get to go first in the nation and caucus first and get to have this big say over who's going to become the nominee for the Democratic Party. Then we're going to have this conversation and people of color are going to have a lens on it. They're going to get to be part of that first say too. And so I also did a piece that mattered a ton to me about the exploding Latino population there. I mean, people- In think Iowa. About, yeah. I mean, people forget Iowa is in many parts an agricultural state. Yeah. What does that mean? It's not just white farmers. 
tons of migrants who come here and work for you, for built sure. up your business, then had families, bought property, contribute to your school district. So there's all these places in Iowa changing dramatically. Latinos are going to take over Iowa and many other parts of this country. That's very interesting and, and 100% very true. Yeah. And it's fascinating to be in a state where there are people who are pretending those demographics aren't what they are. Right. That those shifts aren't what they are. Right. And to see people being like, you know, whether you like me or not, like you're going to wake up in 10 years and you're going to be related to a Latino. Yeah. You're going to look like us. Mm -hmm. And so now you're a triple threat. What does that mean? Writer, video, podcast. I guess. So. <laughs> All three. <laughs> you're the first if, person to say that to if me. If there was some sort of EGOT. Well, you already got the E. The E. Now you, need, you could get a Grammy. Maybe How eventually would I get there, a Grammy? if there was like a podcast. Is there a podcasting? Not Grammys? yet. Not yet. Not but yet. remember, skateboarding just joined the Olympics. Oh, yeah. Like we out here podcasting, going here. to the Grammys. <laughs> What's the O? Yeah. Okay. The O is Oscars. Uh, Oscar. Okay. So you could um, easily get one of those. Yeah. I'm just going to get my sister who works in entertainment to like, like get me on a movie that's going to win an Oscar. Yeah, just EP, some sort of documentary that's going to the Oscars. Yeah. Okay. The Tony, that seems like the most difficult part. I used to sing. I guess I just have to audition. Just for, get back into yeah, it. I just got to go audition. You could write a play. Yeah, I, I would could. watch a play that you wrote. Thank you. Yeah, maybe. Oh, you know what? This is my new goal. I'm going to EGOT. <laughs> you, you heard it here first on yes, this podcast. You heard it on you people. <laughs> Antonia Hinton is going to EGOT. Hilton. I said Hinton. Antonia Hinton. It's an interesting, not your name. Yeah. But <laughs> You're not the first who said that. I think that must be a popular last name. No, I people think it's People will call me like Antonio Hinton. Antonio. Wait. What if you switch the, okay, the L and the N. So Antolia, Antolia, Antolia Hinton. Hinton. Antolia Hinton. It has like kind of like a Greek, Antolia sounds like a, like a Greek. Antolia is a dope name. Yeah, it kind of is. There might be one out there. I haven't met her yet. <laughs> Shout outs to Antolia, <laughs> wherever you may be. Hit me up. <laughs> I hope you're listening to this podcast. That would be interesting if she did hit us up. Mm -hmm. She was like, hi. You're going to you, have to let her be a guest. If she does, you're going to have to bring her are on. Are you guys talking about me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you want to talk about movies for a little bit? Yeah. What's your favorite movie that you have recently watched? That I've recently watched. My brain is like filled with Watchmen things right now. That, that so works. that's TV. That counts. Like, uh, yeah. And when um, I say movies, I mean both. Yeah. Oh, Knives Out though. I really did like Knives I've heard Out. I've such I'll great reviews. That. I haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. I wish we could you talk about it. You should see it over Christmas. See it tonight. You should. Yeah. And Watchmen you loved or I you liked? I fucking loved Watchmen. Okay, and I actually just sent like two really like creepy DMs to two of the writers on Watchmen. They both responded to me. Oh, that's dope. I hope they listen to this podcast. <laughs> I am as much of a loser as like I probably appeared to you in the messages I sent you. Yeah, I the Nick Cuse and Cord Jefferson, <laughs> two people who worked on and, and wrote significant parts of that show. Yeah, I sent them both like really creepy love letters being like, slid this the is DMs. the best thing. I slid into their DMs. The intellectual slide. They replied to me. No, I think it works with the intellectual <laughs> slide in the DMs. Yes. I've had multiple people on this mm -hmm. podcast. So those of you who are thinking about intellectually sliding into someone's DM, do it. Yeah. Because more often than not, it actually works. Mm -hmm. And when you intellectually slide in the DM, the praise is welcome generally. Oh, yeah. By these people. Who doesn't want to get a note saying... I think you're so brilliant and I love this thing. It's the best thing I've ever seen on television. I mean, I would like someone to say that to me someday. And why did you love Watchmen? I watched two episodes and I'm like, I can't do it for some reason. I'm like, I'm just like, it's not grabbing me. So if you haven't read the comics, which I, I haven't. Not. So I actually want to go back and read them now. My understanding or, or what people who have read the comics explained to me was like, you're not going to get it until you're about at episode four. And so you kind of need to push through. 
I thought it was really interesting and I love Regina King's. So yeah, she's I was amazing. confused. The first two episodes, I was like, what? Squids? Sky? What is <laughs> happening? But I was like, this is intriguing. Yeah. And I love watching Regina King kick people's asses. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like first signed on purely for that. Yeah. It was just like Regina King ninja like warrior. I don't know. Okay, I think I can so give it. I think I can give it another chance. Push through to episode four. Because I did think it was intri- I was intrigued. Yeah. I was like, this is, I don't know where it's going. And mm-hmm. I think that was a problem for me is I was like, what? Is going on. The payoff is immense. Episode six, which is called This Extraordinary Being. I don't want to spoil it for you because especially if you've only seen a couple episodes, you don't understand who that episode is about. But it is like the blackest thing I've ever seen on television. Wow. Or at least like on HBO, like white-owned television, I should say. It is so powerful. I teared up at multiple points. The point of view, like the perspective that they put the camera and just the way they tell they managed to tell the story of lynching, the story of like racism in this country, the trauma black people pass on to their children and to their grandchildren and the ways in which like we cannot run from those things. Just the way that they tackle that in that episode blew me away. And I talk about these things every freaking day. Mm-hmm. I watch so much of this stuff. Like I really should not be somebody who can watch an hour of TV and be like, wow, you did something different. They really truly did that. They All did right. that. I'm convinced. Yeah. I'm so I'm it. trying to say this without like bringing up character names and like ruining shit for you. So I'm just saying, watch it <laughs> so I, that I'm you can gonna, see gonna, that episode of television. It's I think the best thing on television that I've ever seen. I'm doing it. Yeah. I think that's all the time we have. Yeah. Unless you want to talk about your unpopular opinion, which you never told me. Um, I don't know if you have one. I have unpopular opinions, but like, I don't know. Some of them are like range from like, casual to like kind of serious like okay casual like i don't think like friends is a good show i agree cool maybe not unpopular i don't know i feel like maybe it's because i work with a lot of like white people in media who like love friends Uh, friends is so bad it's so so bad i don't understand dumber truly truly horrible show i hate it i've tried watching it many times i've tried to i had to turn it off yeah there's a yeah seinfeld is good Seinfeld's okay. I don't Ooh, really get that's Seinfeld. An know, that that's, is an unpopular. That is an Okay, we found it. That's a very unpopular. Opinion. That's a bad. One, I would I say guess. you gotta give it time. You gotta okay. get to know the characters and their idiosyncrasies, and it becomes so funny, okay. so magical. I will try it. And it's definitely not a slapstick humor. Like the joke, you have to like really commit, and then you'll like every joke will pay off every episode, and okay. it just becomes the most entertaining television show. Yeah. I will promise to try it again. I will say I've seen at least like three, four episodes and been like, that's not what is going on? I don't get these people. Um, And part of me was just like, maybe this just isn't like my cultural like experience in life. So like, maybe this just isn't for me, but I'll try it. I'm a big fan of, I guess, Jewish humor. Yeah. Very big fan. Okay. I feel like they understand me. I understand that. I feel like I am in other contexts. It's just that one show. I'm like, what is going on? But maybe I need to like just roll back and like, I don't know, start somewhere. What's another unpopular opinion? This is like a a downer unpopular opinion, which is, I was just talking about this with my sister the other day. As much as I like highbrow stuff, I also watch a lot of lowbrow. Like I love reality TV. I think like Flavor of Love is like one of my favorite things that's like ever happened on television. I can reenact scenes from that. So that's just like foundational information. And I used to love Jersey Shore. I was like a big Jersey Shore person when These I was in high school. These are big surprises to me. So, but I was reconsidering Jersey Shore in conversation with my sister the other day and like realized that show is awful and basically is a show about like women 
living in a house with like men who abuse them, like mentally and sometimes physically, or like putting them in positions to be abused in places in public and that being funny to people and that people loved and rallied around and watched this thing. And like my sister was explaining to me, like apparently the episode where Snooki gets like punched in the face by a man is like when that show took off. And like, I remember laughing so much at like Sam and Ronnie's relationship. And now as like a grown person who's had like complicated relationships myself, I look back at their relationship. I'm like, he was abusive toward her. And that was really dark and sad. But I laughed at that shit every day in high Mm -hmm. school. And I feel really bad about that. And I feel bad that like I went to like Jersey Shore theme parties. Everybody was doing that. Jersey Shore (laughs) con. Yeah, I mean, I didn't go to Jersey Shore Con. I don't know if that exists. No, but like, I'm just I basically, saying. I mean, like, what do you think suburban white kids do when like <laughs> that kind of show comes out? Like, immediately, they're like, "I'm throwing a Jersey Shore theme party for my birthday." <laughs> so, like, I went to that stuff and like thought it was funny, and I just have been reconsidering that, being like, like I guess my unpopular opinion was like, "Flavor of Love" is wonderful. <laughs> Jersey Shore is really bad. That could be an unpopular opinion in some circles. I'm not committed to either. Okay, but I will agree with you. I'll yeah. follow your judgment. I believe in that. Yeah. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening, Antonia Hilton. Yes. Signing off. Signing off. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Peace out, everyone. Bye. Keep up with Antonia and follow her on Instagram and Twitter at A Hilton with a Y26. If you like this show, the one you're listening to right now, please follow us on Instagram at youpeople.podcast and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. If you like me, your host, follow at Kareem on Instagram. And if you're interested in hearing more colorful stories, follow us at hyphen media. This episode of You People is presented in partnership with Listening Party. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. We will see you in the future. Mm-hmm.